You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Melissa Marr. Her new novel for adults is Graveminder. And this novel, I think, takes off from your Wicked Lovely series. And I, I would like to talk about that because this is a series for young adults. It's set in the world of fairy. And one of the things I think you're, that you do that's very interesting is you love the rules of supernatural novels, don't you? I do. Um, actually, I love, I love the idea of rules in general. Um, there's something kind of exciting to me about let's figure out what the rules are to see what are the workarounds and I think with fairy folklore one of the things that's really interesting is you know fairies can't lie so there are all of these traditions of finding workarounds I mean the tradition is you do you make a vow and you're never gonna win when you make a vow with the supernatural creature that's hundreds and hundreds of years old and their practice is in finding ways to get around the rules so um, it seemed like the perfect sort of subject matter to play with now, one of the things that I like about uh, the fairy rules is, of course, rules are made to be broken, and <laughs> and, and young adults are known to, on occasion, want to break rules. So I'd like you to talk about creating this dynamic between very young, inexperienced characters. And typically, my experience with young adults is they think they know more than the oldest adult in the world, but when you're talking with a fairy adult who's looks very young but is probably several centuries old, that takes it into a whole different realm of confrontation, doesn't it? It does, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, speculative fiction is a way that we can talk about real life things with the guise of supernatural over top, and, and I think the idea of rules and testing rules and breaking rules is very much um, appropriate for looking in, at teen novels. Um, as a teenager, it was one of my favorite hobbies, and um, <laughs> you know, so so doing it w through this way seems to make it seems to make good sense. And the challenge is, I mean, we all have rules that we're abiding by every day that we don't have control over. Whether they're rules from our school, our job, our, our government, they're constantly rules. And as a teenager, I think it's the first time where you're really trying to figure out. How far can I push those rules um, from someone other than mom and dad? You know, one of the things that I like that, about what you just said is the idea of speculative fiction. It's really good for externalizing um, things that we can't, are really difficult to talk about. Right. Yet when you turn, as Rod Serling famously said, he could put words into the mouths of Martians and Venusians that he couldn't put into the words of Republicans and Democrats. Precisely, <laughs> precisely. I mean, and that's what speculative fiction does best, I mm -hmm. think. I mean, if you look at if you look at Frankenstein, we can read it as talking about, you know, fear of science. We can talk about issues with childbirth. And if you look at a lot of modern speculative fiction, it's, it's the same sort of idea. I mean, it's a way to deal with those things. For me, um, my second novel, Ink Exchange, was dealing with addiction and dealing with rape and I, I am a rape survivor and it was a way to talk about those things under the guise of a story so you can read it and you can look at those or you can just read it for the story and I think that's one of the beauties whereas if you read an issue book it's really about that issue whereas with this sometimes it's just a story and, and one of the things too uh, with a novel like Ink Exchange that you can do is you can make things exciting and and scary and talk about things in a way that you can have that kind of emotional resonance that um, 
in a more realistically uh, grounded novel that you really can't. The, the characters can identify with things that are uh, more difficult to identify with. Um, just by virtue of the distance that the supernatural gives you. It gives you that uh, an angle of perception, of yes. perspective. Precisely. I mean, and it, it was, I think if we're dealing with addiction, it was kind of perfect because we don't like talking about when we talk about addiction and various things. We don't like talking about the fact that it is, it is fun the first few times. I mean, that there's a part, there's a reason people go to those dark places. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's because we're broken and sometimes because it really does feel good. Um, but I think we, we're so used to, we don't want to address that part. And I don't think we can address the part of how destructive it is, how much damage it will do in the long term until we discuss the fact that there's a reason people do it. Um, and I think using the fairies for that, let me take that attractive dark part and make it into this supernatural creature. And so it worked as a metaphor. Now, uh, I, you talked about speculative fiction. Talk about your own experiences growing up reading speculative fiction. Did you, were one of those people who discovered Ray Bradbury as a child? Um, I grew up um, in the country, mm -hmm. and uh, we had a television with two channels, <laughs> which was great for news and football and not much else. Um, so I actually, I actually learned to read before I went to school. Hmm. And so I was a devoted library geek. I mean, we'd go and I'd have so many books that we'd have to take two trips to carry them. Um, and so what I was reading from early on was I was reading, I was reading folklore. I was reading everything I could get my hands on. If I didn't, if I didn't have books, I read the cereal boxes. Um, so I read science fiction, but I read romance and I read mystery and I was reading Shakespeare and Chaucer and things that were really not what you're supposed to read at eight. Mm -hmm. Um, but so there's where I was. And so going from that, I went into reading everything from, you know, Bradbury to, you know, again with my Shakespeare and my Victorians and Faulkner and all those things. And then discovered that some of it was considered popular and commercial, and some of it was considered literary, and and there was really these the sort of sense of lines drawn between them that was, was very confusing to me. I mean, a good story is a good story. Sometimes they have other stuff, but you know, so it was an omnivore. That's interesting that you grew up uh, without having making those distinctions between the literary and genre fiction, because I think, like as you say. It's pretty arbitrary. A good story is a good story. Characters capture our imaginations, and nobody used uh, the supernatural more effectively than William Shakespeare. Precisely. <laughs> and so that's the thing. You know, if we, if we have any kind of bias against fantasy, that means we're going to suddenly have to have a bias against Dante. Yeah. And and Shelley and Shakespeare and. You know, we've got problems with Beowulf. I mean, there's a series of fabulous texts that we're calling literary that suddenly, if we're, if we're having issues with the genre, we're going to have to toss those guys out. And so um, it, it's a sort of curious thing to try and, and, and make those defining lines. And you mentioned Dante, who's uh, mm. certainly relevant to the Graveminder <laughs> book. Um, uh, let's, when you started out uh, writing the Wicked Lovely series, did you know it was going to be a series? No. Um, it was actually a short story. Oh, really? And um, was it published? No. No. <clears throat> I wrote it in 2004, mm -hmm. and I sent it off to science fiction and fantasy magazines, and they said, "Oh, we love this. This is a great children's story." So I sent it off to <laughs> children's publications, and they said, "We love this. This is a great adult story." And I realized <laughs> that they both were saying nice things, but they were also both saying no. Mm -hmm. And so about six months passed, and um, I had written another novel that was sort of your can I write a novel experiment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kept thinking about the characters. So in 2005, I turned it into a novel. And then um, as soon as I finished it, I started on a sequel um, because I was waiting to hear back from agents because I had requests right away. 
and uh, it just sort of that next novel ended up being divided into two novels <laughs> and then suddenly I had three and realized that I still had more to say. Um, so about the time after I'd finished the sort of two slash three um, I realized that I needed you know another one to three books to, to finish the arc for these for these fairy courts and these these characters. So, so, so you had a, an arc in mind when you started it then? Um, I kind of knew where they could go, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until I went beyond, um, for me I've always thought of it as the Fairy Court series, I mm -hmm. know that that's not the official title, but it's not a series about these people, it's a series about these different fairy courts. Mm -hmm. And once I got through those first two people, three people in those couple courts, I realized that there were these other courts that were in the background and their story, you know, it's like life. My story impacts the person next to me and that affects the person next to them and, and it just kind of rolls down the line. And so by doing the multiple courts and the multiple points of view, I was able to explore the world of these different fairy courts. That sounds like a lot of fun for as a writer, was it? <laughs> it is, it is. I love, well, I mean, I love hearing people's stories. I used mm -hmm. to tend bar, and I taught, uh, I taught university. And part of that was, you know, when you're doing university and, and freshman English, they submit these papers, and they're based on these wonderful experiences. And so there's so many people, and everyone's got a story. And then you start a book, and I'm supposed to follow just one character. I can't do that in real life, so I certainly couldn't do it in the book. Now, um, a as you were working on these young adult books, um, did you presumably had uh, some adult stuff in mind, and, and that's what, what we have here in I your did. new book, Graveminder. Was Graveminder kind of in the back of your mind while you were writing all these other books? It, it was. Actually, Graveminder was born in 2007 mm. um, when I was in Ireland, um, and that would have been I mean, literally two months after Wicked Lovely came out. Um, I was in Ireland, and I read this little snippet of folklore, and I started thinking about it, and I was like, you so do not have time. You have contracts. And so I kept trying to set it aside. And um, over the course of the next you know, year or two, it just, it just kept sticking with me. And I realized that this story, because the protagonist's journey was, was a 20-something-year-old person uh, journey, it wasn't a teen journey. So I realized it was an adult novel, which posed a new set of problems because I was I was supposedly a YA writer, mm -hmm. um, but the story lingered and, and it just kept growing. So um, so it's a book. Huh. Well, tell us uh, the snippet of folklore. The bit of folklore is that, um, and a lot of cultures have a sense of we have to regard our dead, mm -hmm. um, or there are consequences. You know, in some cultures there are revenants and there. Um, heretics and, and, and various sort of the dead come back. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got the Day of the Dead. You've, there's so many interesting things. But the one for me was um, that you have to provide your dead with food, drink, and story. Mm. And by providing that, you're nourishing them for the initial period in the soil. And if you fail to do that, there is a night of the year um, here in the U.S. We celebrate it as Halloween. Um, and on that night, they come back and they come to your house as the sun sets, and you have to provide for them the nourishment you failed to provide while they were in the soil, and you have until morning, and so you have to feed them, and you have to give them drink, and you have to tell stories and talk to them, and if they are satisfied by the time the sun rises, they'll go back to the grave and bother you no more, so it's a sort of ghostly visitation, but if you fail to satisfy them, they're going to take the human equivalent, which is flesh, blood, and breath, and the problem, of course, with this is that, you know, once you die, you've already been judged. Mm. And um, so the person who fails to nourish their dead and keep them in the soil is then responsible 
for the actions of the dead that they've just let loose. And so from that was born the idea of what if instead of everyone having to mind their own dead, what if one person was responsible for the town's dead? Um, and that's Graveminder. Now, this is a really interesting idea of uh, shifting responsibility. And so I, I you know, I, I really like the way you've done this in the book because there are kind of two layers of mystery. In the first layer, you know, we're just trying to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm and the characters, some, along with the characters. Mm -hmm. And in the second layer, the characters are trying, now that they know the kind of the setup, they have to figure out why the setup is wrong. So you have an interesting sense of plotting, so, uh, I, I, which is, makes the book really entertaining to read. Mm -hmm. So talk about uh, just creating these two characters. And, and I think there's, the, there's a lot to talk about these characters because they have some very interesting things to say about your perceptions of men and women <laughs> and how they regard relationships. Um, <laughs> well, um, I, like I said, I come from a small town. Um, and I moved away, you know, went away to college, went away to graduate school. Um, I married a Marine Corps officer, and so we kept moving. And so for me, there was always this idea of going home, the mm -hmm. question of what's home like and, you know, how, how your perception of home changes when you come back. Um, you know, you get, you know, we've, we've been in the same place for a couple of years, and you start to get the itchy feet. It's time to go. But mm. what if you had to go back home? You know, and a lot of us do. I've had friends that had to go back home because their parents were ill, and, you know, you have to go home and take care of your parents. And so I thought, well, what if when you go home, the secret that you find out about, you know, the world you left behind is so much larger? And so a lot of it really comes from that question of, you know, going home again and, and what home is like and, you know, what what your perceptions say about home and what home's perception make you see about yourself. It's a sort of reflective experience. That's really an interesting uh, idea um, because this really is also plays into the idea of the Gothic novel. And I think the way the Gothic novel has been, you know, that's a, more of a European mm -hmm. tradition of a woman locked away in a castle. And here in America, I think the way we've reincarnated that is the way, and this is a perfect example of it, is the small town with a secret. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it's Shirley Jackson in the lottery or, Stephen, <laughs> or Stephen King in Salem's mm -hmm. Lot, all these small towns have secrets. And, and the, your town has a secret. So talk about uh, creating the town. I have to say, you, you're just pretty much picking favorites of mine off my bookshelf. I don't know if you realize <laughs> that or it's just obvious in the text, but I'm like, I'm watching you go down my bookshelf here. You've got Dante and you've got Stephen King. I, I remember reading that when I was very young. Uh -huh. um, and just, that's fabulous fun to, to see that you're seeing that. Um, the town's secret is, you know, uh, the dead, the mm -hmm. dead coming back. Um, and part of the secret with it and, and playing with the Gothic is the idea of people in the town knowing, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and you have that in small towns. Everyone knows everyone's business. I mean, it is the nature of small towns. Um, so it plays with the Gothic, and I don't know that it played with the Gothic intentionally, but my graduate studies were in American Southern literature mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. British Victorian and Romantics. So <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the, the Gothic over there and the Gothic over here, and, and it very much has those Gothic, not intentionally. I didn't say, oh, what are the Gothic traits, and I have to put them in here, but there are the labyrinthine tunnels and there are, you know, there's your Byronic hero slash Gothic Byron. villain and then there's Byron who's actually a Gothic hero but not a Byronic hero and then there's Beck who is very much um, a more, more modern version of the uh, Gothic heroine 
and then you've got the sounds in the night, you've got the, the sort of betrayals. I mean, like, I'm going through the list of, of all the sort of gothic traits and going, I didn't mean to write a gothic novel, but it certainly seems to have become one. So, yeah. Now, um, one of the things that, that I really like about this is that another classic American story, I couldn't help but think about it, was Rip Van Winkle. Mm -hmm. and, and all the problems with fairies and food, it, do you have food issues? <laughs> I, I do. I have to admit, I'm no, very picky. Of course picky. I do. Of course I do. I'm female. Um, no, I mean, there there is a tradition in a lot of cultures. I mean, mm -hmm. in folklore, you know, you don't eat with the fairies, or there's consequences. There's traditions with eating with the dead. I mean, you've got Persephone. Mm -hmm. You know, she gets trapped and has to spend X number of months in Hades because she eats X number of uh, pomegranate seeds. Mm -hmm. You know, and so the sense of of food and dead and food and fairies, and I mean, it's it's like a long-standing folkloric tradition to play with the idea of um, of how that works. Um, and, and, and all joking aside, I, I you know, um, part of being a rape survivor was that I went through, you know, I went through the whole anorexia thing. So there were, there were the food issues, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, um, it's a combination of, you know, the things that, I think for all authors, the things that we've taken in as reading, which you're very <laughs> clearly uh, seeing, um, personal experiences and, and, you know, research and interest. I mean, Byron is influenced by the, the sort of joke of he's not the Byronic hero, um, but also um, he's influenced by an undertaker who was my consultant for the book. Mm. And so um, I'm like, okay, so I need to know, like, what do you do on your off time and all this <laughs> stuff to make him real. So I think, you know, all of those things come together to create a text. You know, uh, one of the things that's uh, really fun about this book is this made me think about, um, you were talking earlier about using the supernatural and speculative fiction to externalize kind of things. And I never have thought about this before, but one thing you do really well in this is use the supernatural to kind of give us uh, a picture of, of relationships. And, and there's a, you know, the, the, the traditional thing is, you know, you go to bed together and you wake up alone. Somebody's vanished, and I never thought of that in the kind of supernatural context. But that kind of thing uh, is is very much real and happens here because uh, there's a couple worlds to deal with here, not just one. Yes. Well, and in terms of you know just supernatural dealing with relationships, I mean, we have this this wonderful. I mean, it's it's the big American fairy tale that you're going to find your your one and only, your your soulmate, your true, you know, and then. That's a lot of what I was playing with in Wicked Lovely is oh. the idea of fated love. Mm -hmm. Well, what if that isn't the fate I want? Right. You know, <laughs> um, and in this case, you know, maybe it's the fate that you have to make the best of the fate you have. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think we have that. I mean, it gets back to rules. I mean, we are who we are because of where we're born, when we're born, to whom we're born. You know, our parents' culture, religion, all of those things inform our, our early selves, and that leads us to having rules and restrictions and in Rebecca's case you know luck at the draw she's she is where she is and and Byron you know his dad was an undertaker and, and the idea that these our parents decisions really impact us I mean you know not to pull Faulkner into it but the sense of you know Absalom Absalom you know the, the, the sins of the father are beset on the child past isn't dead it's not even past that exactly. seems to me that's a that's a phrase that I've been saying a lot lately I said I should start to worry. <laughs> it, is, it is the way of it, though. Now, one of the things that I loved about this book was this kind of your vision of the men's and women's different visions of relationships and, and this kind of uh, arranged marriage thing. Mm -hmm. um, because what we have here is essentially, in some ways, it's an, an arranged marriage. It is. And, and that doesn't make 
her happy, even though these people, and what you have is two people who are actually in love. They don't know they had an arranged marriage. They fell in love before any of that came to pass. Once she realizes it's arranged, she chafes because she wants to make the choice. He really didn't care. Yes. <laughs> I think this is a great vision of men and women. And so talk about exploring yeah. that with a supernatural. You know, Byron's just a little bit more together than Rebecca. Um, you know, it's, it's the sense that, you know, that I think I could have reversed the roles, but I think we do have this illusion that, you know, it's always women trying to, to land a man and, mm -hmm. and catch a spouse and, you know, coming from a small town, um, there were people that thought I was mighty peculiar because I, at 18, decided to go to college instead of marry a nice boy and have some babies. Um, and it was, you know, it was much rejoicing when I finally <laughs> did get married. Thank goodness she's, you know, she's normal. Um, and it was this, this sort of set of preconceived notions that, that a lot of our country has. On the flip side, almost all of my friends are professional working you know, egalitarian women who were not looking to get married. You know, it's a sort of, oh gosh, I think I'm in love. What am I supposed to do about that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a sort of, this is a yay. It's a, that is so going to inconvenience my career, you know. <laughs> and I have a 17-year-old daughter who's decided she doesn't want to date anyone seriously because she has career goals. And uh, a serious boyfriend could lead to love, could lead to a husband, could interfere with a career plan. And, you know, so there, there. No wonder you you're got <laughs> Rebecca. <like> exactly. <laughs> so there really is. It does come from our lives, you know. Um, but there really is this sense that um, women and men really aren't that different. There are some women that are really looking for that, you know, night to come sweep them off their feet, and there are some women that are, you know, setting out the the various wards to keep them from getting near. Um, and there are men that are very much looking for that and. You know, again, we're, we're individuals, and so I thought it was kind of fun for me to sort of flip the roles where it wasn't the, the reluctant man. It was the guy that was like, yeah, I love you. Let's just, okay, we've established that. Let's move forward. Whereas mm. the, the woman saying, I don't really want to do that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Now, uh, also, uh, I think we can safely say that this novel does involve the afterlife. And not only does it involve the afterlife uh, entering our world, um, and you're doing a really interesting thing with that. Let's talk about that because, I mean, we're just kind of overrun with zombies these days. And and <laughs> and what, as I've never been particularly fond of zombies. I always thought they were kind of boring. Well, it depends on the zombie. I mean, and, and I think I think there's where you get into your terminology. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the things that we're defining as zombies today are actually American film zombies, which mm -hmm. aren't based on the traditional zombie, which is the Haitian zombie. Okay, well, and talk about your sense of zombies. <laughs> you're you're obviously a pro. Let's go. <laughs> this is a geek category for me. So Haitian zombies. Um, there is uh, a Bokor, um, who is a sort of like zombie puppet master mm -hmm. um, and a character in here is based on that concept um, but there's there's zombie powder there's a whole process that is used to make someone a zombie they don't eat brains they don't eat flesh this is not this is not what a zombie does that's an American film zombie um, directly derived from a decision to make these films a little bit more frightening and attribute this brain-eating thing um, whereas Haitian zombies they're not brain eaters. Um, they're sort of, um, they're, they're emotionless slaves, basically. 
Um, the Jacques Tournay, I walked with a zombie. That style it, of zombie. Right. It's a very different... But then you've got the, the, the viral zombies, mm -hmm. right? Which, again, we call them zombies as shorthand, but they're not, they're not really zombies. They're, no. They're a viral plague. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's a sort of handy shorthand to call them all zombies, but zombies are actually Haitian. Okay, I like this. So <laughs> you're, you're with the Haitian zombie category, aren't you? <laughs> so there's a little bit of that, but these are very much based on, um, there's obviously Haitian influence, but these are very much based on the Irish tradition of the um, hungry dead, mm. which mm -hmm. there's also a Japanese tradition, and there's, you know, there's all of these, again, there's all of these different revenant cultures. And I think because of the influence of a film in American society, we've just, you know, swept all the folklore aside and said, oh, they're all zombies. Um, and, you know, my hungry dead are very much out of folklore. Um, they're not trying to eat brains. They're not, you know, they're not mindless like the Haitian zombies. They are very specifically from this folklore. Um, and they're, they're apparitions initially. They're mm -hmm. ghostly. Um, and they retain more of their personality based on interaction with, people, um, which is very much ghost, not zombie. But they also take flesh and blood, which is, you know, the American film zombie as well as the uh, American vampire tradition. So, I mean, they're none of those things, but obviously the folklore from different cultures has different terms, and, you know, for shorthand, you know, it's handy to just say, oh, it's a zombie book. Well, this is certainly no zombie book, and most importantly, I think, because one of the things I like about it is that everybody in here is a character. There are no mindless monsters, even though there's, a, there's somebody who's referred to occasionally as a monster. That's actually one of the major characters in the novel. And, and what happens to her, I think, is informed uh, not a little bit by your experience. Um, and I think that, you know, being a, a, a survivor in, in that sense, and she's actually sort of uh, not a survivor. Right. right. And, and this, and I think well, that that's one of the things that I like about this book, is that you allow us to wrap our brains around some pretty terrible things, but give us enough distance so that we can say, yes, that's a really terrible thing, but I can understand it by virtue of the fact that <clears throat> it has this kind of supernatural. Right. Um, outcome and, and that way it allows us to approach these things in a manner that is um, we can get emotionally involved but not overwhelmed and that's the that's the key I think appeal of this kind of fiction well I mean again I mean that's the goal of speculative fiction mm -hmm. so thank you mm -hmm. um, but there's also the sense that you know the phrase that um, explanation is not exoneration mm -hmm. I understand why the characters in this place Sometimes when bad things happen to us, it causes us to do other bad things. Mm. And this particular character has had some really bad things happen. And she's become kind of monstrous in her action. Um, and it was actually one of the, the hard parts for me. I, I didn't want to let people read the book. I mean, usually I have critique partners that read parts of it. And I said, and I'm kind of concerned because one of my protagonists, one of the people telling the story, um, kills one of the other protagonists. I mean, can I redeem a character who um, has eaten another character alive. Um, and, and I love books that have this problem. My critique partner said, no, you may not let one of your characters eat another character alive. That would be wrong. Like, really? Really? Oh. So that would be the rule. And she said, yes. And I said, okay. Um, and I set out to figure out how can I break that rule. Because that's what rules are for. Oh. Um, so yeah, it's, it is definitely a combination of the question of 
um, you know, the function of speculative fiction. It's obviously influenced by the folklore, but there's also that sense of, you know, we always look at what causes a serial killer, or a murder, or various types of bad people. Are they really bad people, or did they just do bad things? And does it matter at some degree? <laughs> I mean, they still did the bad thing. And so how do you come to terms with that? And so trying to walk the line between understanding motivation and still saying, these are heinous things that this person is doing, um, was a lot of fun for me to, to sort of explore. I mean, that's what writing is. It's a chance to explore psychological and philosophical questions. Well, you do a great job, and it's okay. fun to, I really like your sense of the characters, how involving they are, and how the character threads are woven through the supernatural developments and the plotting. That's all very intricate. Did it just flow off the top, tip of your pen, or did this would involve extensive revision, lots of blind, dead alleys, or did it just, you have, do you have an Excel spreadsheet somewhere? Oh, no spreadsheets. <laughs> um, I, I, I have tried numerous times to, to figure out spreadsheets and my brain just doesn't go there. Um, I actually just sat down, uh, typically I don't write my books linearly, mm -hmm. like I write a character's thread and then I weave in the next character's thread, but Gravefinder I actually wrote linearly. It's the first, I mean it's the seventh book I've written, the sixth published novel, and it's the first one that I wrote from page one through page end. Oh, um, really? Which was really a, a new process for me. You know, mm. you think after that many books, you know how to write a book, but it turned out I knew how to write the books in that series, mm. not necessarily how to write this book. Um, so I did write it linearly, um, and I actually go back a lot of times, and I start at the beginning, and I, I've heard you're not to do it this way, but it works for me. I go back and I revise the pages prior um, to where I want to start again that day, and mm. that way by the time I get to the place of writing new words, um, I've already tightened this stuff, <laughs> and I'm already back in the story. Um, and in the process, in tightening it, you're adding passages and descriptions as you go. Um, I like to refer to my writing process as pulling taffy because it's sort of you know going in all different directions. And then at the <laughs> very end, you do get a point of view chart, and I go through and I make sure that there are characters. I rearrange chapters to make sure that the flow of information is accurate, mm -hmm. but also that the primary characters are not too long off screen. So you forget what's going on with them. So um, there, there is a, it's not an Excel because I can't work Excel, but there is a chart <laughs> at the end. Now, uh, talk about, uh, since we have, we talked a little bit about the, the town you created, the, the small town you created. So talk about the other place you create, uh, which is, um, we're getting into Dante's territory we are. And, and, and Beatrice and, and, and uh, yes, there's very much some Dante going on there. Um, I think the and land Orpheus too. It's been a it's been a real Orpheus year. I yeah. read another novel that was uh, Orpheus happening there too. So yeah, I mean it's a fascinating thing. I mean when you're thinking about there's no way for us to know which of these theories of the land of, that we go to after our death, mm -hmm. you know, our post death experience, what it's actually like. You know, religions have theories, philosophical philosophical thinkers have theories, people in general have theories, mm -hmm. but there's no real sort of, aha, this is what it's like. Um, and so one of the things that I thought was really interesting is a sort of notion that our post-death experience is subjective to the person. And if it's going to be subjective, because there are various threads that go that way, um, if it's going to be subjective to the person, we would base it on what we know. And what we would know is a specific time period. Mm -hmm. Well, what if our subjective death experience is shared with others? And so they all sort of build on each other, and you have this amalgamation of eras um, because the people die at different time periods. So for me, 
it was a sort of extension of a theory of a post-death reality, mm. um, as well as obviously Dante with the <laughs> idea that there are there are different levels, um, and uh, and that's actually what I'm exploring in, in the second book in this world that I'm working on right now. I was going to ask that. that. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Very much. I, I think it's I think it's kind of interesting to think about you know what comes next, and I think we have. I mean, we have some cultural baggage. I mean, people find, there are people that find undertakers disquieting. They find cemeteries uncomfortable. I mean, because we have this sort of fear of our mortality that, um, you know, I don't always understand. What, why don't you understand it? Do you not fear death yourself? I don't. I don't. Um, You've already written them. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, there well, you go. I did part. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, what's... It comes when it comes. I mean, if, mm -hmm. we, if we sit around fearing, we're missing the time that we're spending living. Hopefully, it's a wonderful new adventure. If it's not, I'll figure it out when I get there. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem like something I want to spend a lot of time worrying about. I mm. mean, like I said, my husband, uh, is he's retired now, but active duty Marine, you know, you have to think about death. Yeah, sure. You know, we had, you know, I remember standing outside and people come and, there were casualty calls on my street, mm. neighbors whose spouses didn't come home. Mm. Um, and, you know, add that to in my 20s, I had some health issues. So the combination of thinking about death for myself, thinking about death for my spouse, you know, I sort of, I'm not looking forward to it. I'm not like, yay, let's go do that. But um, I'm, I'm at peace with the idea. So it made it kind of easier to, to think about, well, what if it was fun? It sounds like uh, Rebecca. You, you, there's more than a little bit of Rebe you and Rebecca, there isn't is. there? There is. This is actually the first book that, that I, I will say has my pulse in it. Mm -hmm. um, um, I actually picked the picture for the cover because it reminded me of my grandma's house. Really? So, yeah. Now, where did you, what small, you say you came from a small town. Where was it? What, what's the Pennsylvania. town? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. I come from Pennsylvania, nice. where it is. You know, I've been I've been late for school because of cow crossing. Really? Um, <laughs> we were out there a little ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was you know, we went and we we did. My my father mows the parish cemetery as a sort of service to the church. Um, he's he's an Irish Catholic, and so um, you know. I, I can now I can see even more. Yeah. It puts us really in the picture now. Uh, Wicked Lovely is a series for young adults. It, uh, it's coming to the screen soon. Talk about that process. Um, when was were the rights sold, and how long did you wait? And oh, um, we had interest, and the right person hadn't come along. And then I want to say it wasn't too long after the fourth book came out um, that I got a call. My agent called, and she said Vince Vaughn wants to buy your book, and I said. Okay, there's lots of bookstores, you know, and uh, <laughs> she said, do you know who Vince Vaughn is? And I said, no, I actually don't. I don't watch a lot of movies and TV. <laughs> so she had me look him up, and I st she stayed on the phone with me, and I was like, okay, that's nice. And she said, they're waiting in a conference room. They want to talk to you right now. And I wow. Said, okay. Um, I guess he wants to play the under. <laughs> yeah, he was like, boom. Um, he's he's he was a fabulous, fab, he's a fabulous man. Mm -hmm. um, the whole team has been fabulous. Um, so they sort of swooped in and they had a lot of ideas. And there was there were still other people. There was someone that I had rejected a couple times that came back, and they said they wanted to go to auction. And I told my agent, I said, I get what Vince Vaughn's team, they, they get my vision. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to go to auction. I don't want to have them fight and, and me risk going with someone that doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. So um, so this is what we're doing. We're going with them. 
And so they optioned it, and then uh, Caroline Thompson, who did, uh, she's worked on a lot of Tim Burton movies. She did uh, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, Corpse Bride, Edward Scissorhands. She wrote the... Those are the, those are the best yes. <laughs> Tim Burton movies, and they're perfect. Like, yes, for, and for... She's, she's just fabulous. And then, um, actually, just last night, um, they did uh, Universal did the press release, mm -hmm. Mary Heron, who did um, the reboot of American Psycho. Right. And Notorious Betty Page. And back in the day, she was the first American. I shot one, and Andy yes. Warhol? Yes. yes. <laughs> and she was the first American journalist to interview the Sex Pistols. I'm like, you cannot get cooler than that. <laughs> no, no. So, um, so yeah, so we have the, the press release just went out last night with the director. So, um, so yeah, it's, and they've kept me in the loop on everything. I've been out to, to LA, I don't know, four or five times. Um, so I've, worked with them on my visions and what the characters look like in the world and I've read all the drafts of the script. I mean they've just been, they've been cool. Bottom line, they've been cool. And this sounds like a really uh, an ideal uh, experience for a writer, seeing your stuff made into a movie, getting it done right the right way. It is very cool um, and then as a sort of like icing on the proverbial cake, um, Ken Olin just optioned Gravebinder for uh, television. Oh, wow. So, uh, in, and in again, the... creative force. He's, yeah. He's just brilliant. And it was the same sort of thing. Um, I was in Italy and I got an email that said, Ken Olin wants to meet with you. And so this time I've learned, I looked him up and he did 30-something. Uh, uh, oh, right, right, right. Alias and Felicity and he's done a show. He's creator, director, producer, actor for a show called brothers and sisters mm -hmm. the yeah. past like six years yeah, yeah um so i was actually headed out to la the following week so i met him in la and he got the book like that like mm. everything about it and uh, i left the meeting and called my agent and said withdraw it from everyone else he's the man oh wow and, uh, what so fun you've been lucky haven't I you i have <laughs> i have the universe has been kind and uh, that's in part because you've created a kind universe. <laughs> I've been speaking with Melissa Marr. Her new book is Graveminder. Thank you for joining me, Thank Melissa. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. It was. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.